Hello, welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin. I'm a philosopher based at the University of Kent, and I'm also director of the British Philosophical Association. This is an episode on metaethics. It's a short episode. Um, out there in the pod ether, there are a couple of Philosophy Gets Schooled episodes that are in-depth um, about metaethics. Uh, where I talk with Paul Moorbridger and Ben Jones, a couple of teachers, and we go through all of the material and metaethics in different specifications. Um, there's one episode on moral realism and one episode on moral anti-realism. Metaethics is one of the key areas, uh, not just in moral philosophy, but in philosophy generally, and it appears on the A-level syllabuses for AQA, OCR, and Edexcel. It's also on the IB specification. Um, so it's well worth getting to grips with and well worth listening to not just this summary episode, but also the two in-depth episodes. Um, so this summary episode is just going to explain, give you a sense of the terrain of metaethics, um, the various isms and positions, some of the big players. Um, but before we do all of that, let's explain what metaethics is. So in another um, pod episode, I explain what metaethics is, but it won't hurt to go through that again. So um, moral philosophy or ethics often comes in three main parts. So during, uh, as you live your life, you might be thinking about all sorts of various topics that are a bit controversial and are ethically controversial. So topics such as uh, war and peace. So is there the possibility of having a just war, a kind of war that can be fought that's morally good? And if so, what does that war look like? All sorts of issues surrounding life and, and death um, around abortion, euthanasia, uh, all sorts of uh, ways in which people might be killed, but some of which the law allows and think indeed is, is morally fine, but obviously many that aren't. So how do we work out which ones are permissible and which ones aren't? Lots of topics like that. And indeed, there are some pod episodes in Philosophy Gets Schools about some of those topics. But as you're working through all of those applied ethical issues, you might be thinking, well, perhaps there's some general stances or ways of justifying what our decisions are, rather than it just seeming as if we're just making decisions randomly, although that's often not the case, but it seems as if we're making decisions that are a bit random. And so from some topics in applied ethics, you might then develop what are called normative ethical theories, and that's the kind of main second main area of, of, of moral philosophy, um, where we're thinking through those more general stances or ways of justifying our actions. And broadly and briefly, when you're thinking about people acting or how they have acted, um, both in moral philosophy and also in the law, there are different features of those actions that you might focus on. You could focus on the consequences, you know, what are the effects of the action, and that will get you to, get you to positions such as utilitarianism. We might be focusing on the action types themselves, and that gives you kind of deontology or, and the work of Immanuel Kant. You might be focusing on uh, the characteristics of the people who are acting, and perhaps not just focusing on actions, but focusing in general on, on what sort of life we should be living, and that gets you into um, kind of virtue ethics. Um, lots of other things to say about normative ethics and indeed applied ethics. But all the way through that very brief three-minute run-through of those two areas, one thing that's kept constant is this. We're assuming that things can be right and wrong, good and bad. They can be justified. They can be permissible. They can be impermissible. 
But what metaethics does is then question that and say, well, look, we, we accord value to all these actions and situations and people. We think people can be morally good and bad and actions can be right and wrong. But can they be? Are they? What do we mean when we say that an action is morally good and that someone's kind? What do we mean when we say that someone is cruel? What's going on? And that's metaethics. And metaethics, as I say, has been one of the most uh, exciting areas of moral philosophy for the last few years. In fact, for, for about the uh, last hundred years or more. Um, but there's a lot going on in metaethics. It can seem a bit confusing and a bit hard. Um, so I hope that these three pod episodes of metaethics will help you out. And perhaps it's worth explaining why it might seem both exhilarating and exciting, but also a bit confusing and a bit hard. It's partly, I think, for this reason, and something we mentioned in the two in-depth episodes. Metaethics combines questions of, on, of ontology or metaphysics. So do moral properties exist? What's their nature? We'll come on to that in a short moment. With questions about philosophy of language and about linguistic practice. So what's going on when I declare that that action is wrong or that she was cruel or that they're kind. What's going on with those utterances? It also involves our mindset and how we're motivated to act. Uh, and in fact, that's a really important thing to, to, to remember when it comes to, to ethical activity, even though it can seem quite dry and abstract because it's philosophy, right? Actually, it's concerned with the most everyday practical activities that we have when we are judging and acting all the time in moral ways, either big significant things about whether to go to war or still significant but smaller things such as whether to keep a promise, break a promise or indeed make a promise to, to a friend. So it's a very practical activity um, but there's all of these other things going on, how we use language, uh, the ontology, how we're motivated. And there's lots, there's lots of things in a package. And actually, sometimes students ask me, yeah, but, but so all those things are part of metaethics. But what's the prime focus of metaethics? Is it ontology? Is it the metaphysics of what things exist? Or is it about language use? Or is it about something else? And actually, the exciting but daunting thing about metaethics is that probably none of them is prime. So ontology, language, epistemology, you know, how we might know about supposed moral properties, they're all absolutely essential to thinking through meta-ethical topics. Um, although when I teach, when I explain metaethics briefly, I normally tend to lead with, with the metaphysical aspect, but it doesn't mean it's the most important. Um, and that can seem a bit confusing at the start. It generates lots of different positions, as I'm sure you found or might be finding if you're listening to this as you're studying metaethics for the first time but also it can be quite exhilarating well and exciting so stick with it it's worth it okay so that's a general sense of of, of metaethics we talk more about that in the two in-depth um, episodes with paul and ben uh, let's give you a brief sense of family of positions because metaethics is big questions about whether moral properties exist and how we might know about them and what happens with language use but a lot of these questions coalesce, or, or the answers to these questions coalesce around different positions. Okay, so there's two broad family of positions in metaethics, certainly when it comes to the A level and IB specifications moral realism and moral anti realism, which is why we've got the two episodes episode one on moral realism, episode two on moral anti realism. So, with um, moral realism, 
Um, what do moralists believe? Well, first of all, as the name suggests, they think there is a moral reality, right? So that's the, the main central commitment of moral realists. There is a moral reality. What do we mean by that? Well, in fact, actually, if you listen um, to the two um, uh, in-depth episodes, if you do any metaethical reading, you'll find that, confusingly, philosophers use lots of different terms. So facts, properties, features, qualities, values... All of these terms are kind of getting at the same essential idea. There's moral stuff. Okay, so here's a fact. It is a fact that the cat is on the mat. It is a fact that the cat is not on the mat. It is a fact that her action was wrong. It is a fact that their action was cruel. That's a way of stating facts. And facts are metaphysical entities, they're kind of structured entities that philosophers talk not about. But facts or situations might have certain properties or features or qualities or value. So perhaps her action has the property or feature or quality of wrongness or being wrong. That's often how philosophers talk. So if you're getting confused with these different terms of properties and facts and features, that's all that's going on. It's basically a placeholder for moral stuff. And as I say, Moralists believe that there's moral stuff out there. And moral stuff is the sort of thing that we can be responding to as human agents and human judges. It's the sort of thing that often makes our judgments true, such as her action was wrong or his action was kind. Uh, and also a key thought that uh, moralists have is that these facts or properties or features are somehow objective or in different terms, independent or mind independent. They're independent of humans and our agency. So just as this table that I'm currently sitting at um, is independent of me, I'm not, I don't think anyway I've created it as part of my mind, although that's a different area of philosophy, isn't it? Um, so we, so realists say that moral facts or moral properties exist independently, not just of me, but of, but of humans in general, at least, at the A-level specification, if you come and study metaethics at university level, things get really exciting then about the interaction between humans and the world, where you might be able to develop a realist position, but let's let's ignore that uh, for now. Now, so within moral realism, there are different sorts of positions, as you might expect. Um, and within the specifications, uh, most of them, if not all of them, mention naturalism and non-naturalism. There's also a third very important position, which is worth just considering, and that's supernaturalism. And when we're thinking about naturalism, non-naturalism, supernaturalism, what we're really thinking about is this question. So a moralist thinks moral stuff, moral facts, moral properties exist, but how do they exist? How do they get into the world? And importantly, what's their relationship with other things in the world or things that we suppose exist? Let's think first about supernaturalism. So supernaturalism says, um, uh, things get to be right or wrong or good or good or bad in part or in whole because God or the gods has decided it is so. So we're saying her action is wrong or his action is cruel. So obviously they are the agents of those actions. They've done particular things that are wrong or, or cruel. But the status of that action, that moral status, is in some way linked to the judgment or decision of God or the gods. Okay, that's supernaturalism. We don't talk much about that in the specification. As I say, the thing that we focus on is naturalism and non-naturalism. So naturalists, what, 
who are moral realists say, yes, moral properties exist, and they in somehow connect with, cohere with, are part of the natural world. What do they mean by the natural world? They mean the world that can be uh, accessed quite readily by human senses um, and be studied by the natural sciences. And in fact, as we indicate in the in-depth episode, there's all sorts of different conceptions of what the natural world is. Do we mean current science? So the sort of things that current science study, examine, measure, verify? Or do we mean a better, more perfect science? After all, science has evolved. Or do we mean nothing about science at all, but do we mean the sorts of property where humans can readily see that there's a causal interaction, cause and effect, so a moral property causes something else to happen? Is that a kind of core definition or a core criterion of what uh, moral naturalism needs to be? So there's all sorts of debates there, but basically the idea is moral properties exist and they cohere with or better, are part of the natural world. And there's reasons for that. We don't want to perhaps think about um, moral properties existing in some strange realm. Right? We want them to be part of our everyday world uh, because we want to be able to access them and make judgments and try to get uh, true, try to make true judgments. Um, and in fact, um, uh, a very interesting um, uh, position that is a kind of moral naturalist position or can be assumed to be a moral naturalist position is traditional hedonic utilitarianism. So the, so the utilitarianism of Bentham and Mill, where they're thinking about pleasure and pain. So when they're saying what we ought to be doing, what justifies an action being right or wrong is the maximization of, of pleasure, the avoidance of pain, right? The things that you might be familiar with from any studies in normative ethics, but also you can give that a meta-ethical twist. You can say something gets, we, we, you can interpret that as a moral realist position, indeed a naturalist position, right? Here is an action where someone has maximized pleasure and that makes the action good and we can readily see it. And pleasure is something that's part of the natural world. It's the sort of thing that can be measured, verified, seen, studied by scientists, right? Think about neuroscientists and perhaps their links with uh, bioscientists. So pleasure and pain are part of the natural world. So goodness, badness, rightness, wrongness, they get in very easily. And perhaps we have some more complicated story about cruelty and kindness and courage, but, event, but essentially it all links back to pleasure and pain, which can be measured and verified and seen by natural scientists. Okay, what about the non-naturalists? What do they believe? Well, they're very skeptical about this whole naturalist position. Um, so G.E. Moore, who uh, you might well study, um, published a book in 1903 called Principia Ethica. And even though there's lots of meta-ethical stuff in, in uh, philosophy, certainly Western tradition, before Principia Ethica, many people see the start of modern meta-ethics as starting with, with Moore's book, Principia Ethica. And he has this range of things that he talks about. But in particular, he talks about and gives the open question argument because he thinks that naturalistic positions such as the position I've just identified, that sort of utilitarian uh, naturalist, realist position, is uh, guilty of committing the naturalistic fallacy, this identification of moral goodness with um, some natural property or feature, such as the maximization of pleasure. And very simply, Moore says, look, it's always an open question. We can say of this particular action that's happened or an action that we're considering about performing, this would maximize pleasure. But would it be or is it morally good? And Moore says, 
that sort of question always makes sense. It has an open feel. Other questions we can ask have a closed feel. This is a square, but is it four-sided? Of course it is. Of course it is. But with some questions, such as the identification uh, that we've just supposed, the question we built around, so this is maximization of pleasure, but is it morally good? When we ask that question, it has an open feel. We could go one of two ways. And Moore says that gives us a very, very, very strong sense that natural features and properties are not to be identified with um, moral features and properties. And that leads more to then develop a non-naturalist position. So non-naturalism is basically there are moral features, properties, it's a realist position, but moral features, properties, facts are of their own kind. Or perhaps you might come across a little bit of Latin, which is sui generis, S-U-I space G-E-N-E-R-I-S, which basically just means of its own kind. Okay, can't be reduced to or seen to be part of the natural world. Far more to say about Moore's open question argument about naturalism and non-naturalism. Listen to the in-depth um, episode to get more of a sense of how Moore's argument might fail, but how there's still something to it. And perhaps I'll just indicate what, what there is something to it. This big kind of question about how the moral, or indeed the aesthetic or other values, how they sit in, how they're part of the natural world that we're used to with the rise of modern science and of our senses is a key question in metaethics, right? And, and actually you can see that ripple through lots and lots and lots of other discussions. Okay, so that gives you a sense of what's going on with moral realism. What about moral anti-realism? Okay, so in order to understand moral anti-realism, you need to understand a crucial distinction I haven't yet introduced. And that's the distinction between cognitivism and non-cognitivism. What do cognitivists say? Well, cognitivists might say a number of things. And when you get to university level, if you're doing metaethics, you'll see that there's some interesting stuff going on there. Not just about language, but also how the mind works and what things we can know or think we can know and not know. But to cut a long story short, let's assume it's just about language. So... Language can be used to do lots of different things. Throughout this podcast, I'm telling you lots of things. I'm reporting what more, or at least what I think more says, and what metaethicists say. Um, and I've, I can say things like, there is a table in front of me. Um, there, the sun is shining outside the window, and I like strawberries. All of these things uh, all of these sentences are declaring and trying to describe the world. And some of them are true. And some of them might be false. They're all what we might describe as truth apt. They're the types of statement because of their grammatical structure that can be apt to be true. And one hopes one makes moral judgments, one's making true moral judgments, but occasionally you make false ones, right? So you might say giving to this specific charity is good, or you might say giving to this specific charity is morally bad. Well, one's gonna be right, probably, and one's gonna be wrong. Cognivists think that the way that moral language works and what we're assuming, presupposing about our moral language and our moral thought and judgment is basically moral stuff. Moral language is working in this way, in this cognitivist way. Non-cognivists believe something different, and we'll come on to that in a moment. Okay, so let's think about anti-realism and cognitivism, that combination. And that combination um, comes in with John Mackey's error theory, which I think a lot of you are going to be studying. 
So John Mackey's Australian philosopher based in Oxford publishes a book 1977 called Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong, where he puts forward an error theory. So he agrees with realists who typically are cognitivists. He agrees with the cognitivism part. He thinks that when we're making more judgments and when we're discussing things with people, when we're thinking things through, we're trying to, we, or we think what we're doing is describing the world. So when we say her action was kind, his action was cruel, what we think we're doing is trying to describe the world and trying to pick out properties such as kindness and cruelty. But, says Mackey, no such properties exist. There are no moral facts, there are no properties, there are no features, nothing. That's the anti-realism. So anti-realists say, against moral realism, there is no moral stuff, right? We think we're describing stuff, but we get it wrong. And it's not just that many judgments are false, it's just that and all judgments are false. It's not just a coincidence. They're, they're the sorts of things, moral statements, that couldn't get to be false. They're systematically false. Why? Because moral properties do not exist. There is no, what philosophers often refer to as, truth makers. And why is that? Well, Mackey's got a range of arguments. Listen to the in-depth episode to get a sense of those. One of the most famous is uh, something he called in 1977, the argument from queerness. Although nowadays um, people refer to that as the argument from strangeness, the argument from weirdness. So... Mackey thinks that moral realists assume that people think that moral properties have to have two main aspects. They have to be objective and independent of human concerns. And yet they're the sorts of things that also make claims on us that motivate us. OK, so when I say that um, a certain course of action is cruel, that has a claim on me that I shouldn't do it. And that I think other people shouldn't do it. Well, how can that be the case, says Mackey, if it's, it's kind of independent of human concerns? That would be a very strange sort of entity, unlike anything else in the universe. There's some other arguments he has as well. We'll talk about those in depth. That's a really, really uh, important argument that, that many people are persuaded by, but other people aren't because Mackey, many people think that Mackey has too much of a straw man target. It's an easy target. And actually, people um, and moral realists are more sophisticated than that in what, in fact, they're assuming and presupposing when they're making moral judgments and engaging in moral thought. Okay, what about the other big family of anti-realist positions, non-cognitivism? So remember I said, what's going on with our language, at least as cognitivists think, is that some, what we're trying to do is describe. But actually, we do uh, loads of things in our language. So through this podcast, I've been describing lots of things. But I've also done a few other things. I think I have anyway, perhaps my memory is failing me. You can use language to ask questions. Are you still awake? Are you enjoying this podcast? We can do other things. We can use language or utter things where we command people to do things such as shut the door or pay attention or go and get me my breakfast. We can do it to suggest things such as it might be good for you to listen to the end of this podcast. In fact, we're doing a whole host of things with our language all the time. And non-cognivists latch on to that because they say, in a way, you could look at what, what happened with, with error theory, with Mackey's theory, and actually see that Mackey's got a bit of a downer on people about how we're using our, our language. But, um, say non-cognivists, language is a really positive, exciting thing. And even though... This is the crucial bit. Even though on the surface, moral statements seem to be 
descriptive or often are descriptive what's really going on this the depth grammar how they're really functioning is in a different way and so actually in the course of the 20th century you get a range of different non-cognitive positions that are playing around with that idea through the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and then more modern non-cognitivists up into the present day. Um, so we discussed two big non-cognitivist families. So emotivism, and we think about AJA in some of the specifications, and then some of the specifications, we also think about prescriptivism and the work of R.M. Hare. So that's Air, A-Y-E-R, and Hare, H-A-R. E, important not to get them um, confused. Um, we do far more detail in the anti-realism episode, but in short, what Air is saying is that moral language is important, but it's not describing the world because yes, moral properties don't exist, right? But it's okay because we're still doing something just as valuable. What we're doing is expressing emotions or expressing likes and dislikes. So quick example. Um, I see my wife, um, she's got some strawberries, and I say, mmm, strawberries. The next day comes along, she's got some more strawberries, and I walk in the room and I say, oh, I like strawberries. Now think about that second sentence, I like, or utterance, I like strawberries. Now on the, on the surface of the grammar, I like strawberries is a descriptive statement. Um, I can say that I like strawberries. My mom can say, Simon likes strawberries. My son likes strawberries. My wife can say, Simon likes strawberries. My husband likes strawberries. These are all descriptive statements. But in the way I've just voiced it, when I'm coming into that room, I say, mmm, I like strawberries. It's even on the surface, it's structured as if it's a description, right? A description of my liking of strawberries. What it's really doing in many circumstances is expressing the like. It's not a description of the like. It's, a, it's an expression of the like, the liking of strawberries. It's working in the same way as mmm strawberries. Mmm strawberries doesn't describe anything on its surface or, or, or in depth. Uh, and so that's uh, basically it's that type of idea that air and other emotivists are thinking about. But listen to the in-depth episode. We give you a bit more detail. And similarly, just riffing on this idea that language can do lots of different things, we also might say we commend or suggest or praise certain actions. We also can make commands, um, such as shut the door or stay awake for the end of the podcast. Um, and that's what's going on at the heart of Hare's prescriptivism, okay? Prescribing, right? Giving you a course of instructions, telling you what to do. Uh, and there are other sorts of non-cognitivist positions as well, which you don't need to worry about. But those are two, kind of two key ones and two, two key historical ones. And really what they're doing is saying, we're anti-realists, there aren't any moral properties, but there's still something really valuable going on with moral thought and discourse and judgment, because moral language isn't quite working as you think it's working on the surface. There's something really important going on uh, in, in the depth. Okay, so that's kind of the main stuff we talk about with moral anti-realism. So in this short episode, I've explained metaethics in general, and then giving you a sense of some of the moral realism and moral anti-realism families. So as I said, there's lots going on in the topic of metaethics. There's the kind of ontological questions, language questions, questions about motivation. But don't forget, in the end, metaethics is concerned with an everyday practical activity, which raises a whole host of really fundamental questions, not just in moral philosophy, but in philosophy generally, about the interaction between humans and our world. 
and it's well worth sticking with. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. And um, if this is the first one you listen to, go and check out the two in-depth episodes, Metroethics Part 1 and Part 2 on realism and anti-realism. Thanks. Thanks.